Good morning. Uh, I have just a quick announcement to make. If you have a Toyota with a license plate that says Turbox, T-U-R-B-O-X, your lights are on. And uh, I was going to give you a discreet opportunity to sneak out, but you beat me to the punch. Great. Well, let's pray, and then uh, we're going to dive into our passage this morning. So please pray with me. Father, it is always a privilege to be together with the family of God. We are blessed by one another, encouraged by each other's walk with you. We're encouraged as we see our neighbor sing songs in bold worship and declaration that may be difficult for us in the moment to say. So, God, we sing to you, but we encourage one another in this whole process of worship. Uh, And, God, the worship, again, has just begun. We know we continue to worship you now as we go to your word. We do ask that you would give us a greater vision and clarity of yourself through the inspired word of God. Uh, God, may it not just be words or information that passes into our ears and in one ear and out the other, but God, may it actually penetrate deep into our heart. By your Holy Spirit, would you illuminate us to understand what is here and change us with your word. Give us the courage to listen to your Holy Spirit, to obey where we need to, to make changes where we need to, to begin what needs to be begun and to stop what needs to stop. So may this be a moment where we as dynamic people come before a dynamic and a holy God. And we listen to you through your word. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, If you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Maybe one of the most uh, famous and favorite chapters in the scripture. The title of the message this morning is An Awkward Conversation. And I trust that you, just as I do, uh, from time to time, are forced to have awkward conversations with folks. Uh, maybe uh, uh, you're, you have a management role at, at your job. You oversee some employees, and you have to go to them and confront them about something they're doing that's really off. And that can be awkward. Uh, if you're a teacher and you have regularly scheduled parent-teacher conferences... And you've got that one kid in your class, little Johnny, who's, well, if we're being honest and not politically correct, it's just a mess, you know. How is this kid going to survive all of the difficulties he's got going for him? And you've got to somehow sit down with parents, talk with them. That can be awkward. Or maybe there's a conversation you need to have with one of your teenagers or one of your kids. And it's just, again, it's awkward. There's plenty of these kinds of conversations that we have to have in our our lives. I can remember when my dad uh, took me fishing to have the talk. And I will just tell you, it was awkward. We had decided to go for a family camping trip, and I thought, oh, this sounds great. And then dad said, you know, one day, Eric, you and I, we're just going to go out to the lake. We'll just fish, just the two of us. Great. That sounds awesome, dad. I get about two casts out into the water, and well, Eric, I brought you out here to have the talk. And I thought, oh, no, this is going to be brutal. And uh, so I said, all right, Dad, what do you want to know? You know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say that. But it was awkward. 
I remember the first and only time I've ever been fired in my life. It was very awkward. I was just, uh, I think, about 14 years old. I was doing some yard work for an old lady named Mrs. New Gear. And uh, I had made an error on one of my uh, days working there. And I had worked very hard and, and did a lot of yard work. But I had left um, a sprinkler on for days and <laughs> while she was gone. And it sort of watered the whole yard, which, of course, just watered all the weeds. And so she called me up and had me come, come back to sit down with her. And she informed me that she was going to have to let me go. And uh, had that conversation in front of my dad. And it was awkward. Uh, just even a few weeks ago, actually a couple months ago now, I had a very awkward conversation with an intruder here at the church. Uh, I had come in early that morning, about 6 o'clock. I was going to take advantage of some quiet hours, and as I walked in, I found lights on everywhere. And I thought, man, those rotten junior hires, you know, they just left everything on and didn't lock anything up, and I was all irritated and grousing about it. So I'm turning things off behind me, and I get upstairs, and and I realized that the lights are on in the youth office. And, you know, just to sort of corroborate my frustrations. Man, these rotten kids, you know, and I'm just grousing. And, and I look in there, and there's an old man in there with a big, long beard, white-haired guy, scary fella. And I thought, I can't believe this. Somebody's in here. They don't belong here. So I opened the door and said, who are you? And uh, we proceeded to have a very awkward conversation. This fellow was mentally imbalanced, and he had been here late at night and had been making phone calls, long-distance calls all over the place, and he was helped himself to some refreshments, which was a cup of Hershey syrup. <laughs> Just had his shoes off, was playing a guitar in there, and I don't think it was music or any particular song. He played, sang me a song, and uh, it was awkward. Finally, I was able to get him out of here and get him to some help, but uh, awkward conversations are a part of life. And you're going to have lots of them. In John chapter 3, we're introduced to what I think actually appears to be a very awkward conversation with Jesus. Um, It's between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And it's, again, one of the most frequently quoted chapters in all of the scripture because of John 3.16. It's right here. But that really clear statement of the gospel that is in John 3.16 comes in the midst of a really awkward conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And I want to show you a couple of reasons why it is so awkward. First of all, the conversation is awkward because of who Nicodemus is. Look at John 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God We're not with him. Well, that's quite a statement here, and it's quite a statement from Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a very prominent figure, as we're told here. He is a Pharisee, which means that he was sort of a a guardian of the law, sort of a combination of a pastor and a lawyer all put together. And I I suspect that he didn't get invited over to many people's houses for dinner, because that sounds like a horrible dinner guest. A lawyer and a pastor all mixed up together. And uh, so that's Nicodemus, a guardian of the law. Not only is he a Pharisee, but he's actually on the ruling council. He's a part of the Sanhedrin, sort of the upper echelon of the Pharisees. There were 70 of these, and they were sort of the ruling council who made decisions on important matters concerning the law. So he was prominent in that he was also a part of the, uh, the, the council, part of the Sanhedrin here. 
And, and on top of that, later on, Jesus sort of dignifies him by saying that he is one of the outstanding teachers in Israel. So this is a knowledgeable, prominent person with position and, and uh, in a sense, a, a lot to lose. And that's likely the reason that he comes to Jesus at night. Did you notice that? A man named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, came to Jesus at night. And he came at a time where he would be less likely to be seen sort of under the cloak of darkness. Uh, at night, less people would be around. At night, less people would recognize him having a conversation with, with Jesus. And so Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night. What I appreciate about him is this, however, though, at least Nicodemus, who has much to lose by interviewing and discuss, having a discussion with this prominent fellow who has emerged on the scene in Jesus here, at least he's willing to have the awkward conversation, right? At least he's willing to go and talk with him. And so neither the, the prominence of his position or the risk of being seen as one who was curious about Jesus keeps him from having this conversation and investigating who Jesus is. And so I, I think, unfortunately, Nicodemus has gotten a bad rap oftentimes in the church. A lot, of, a lot of people will look at him as a bit of a coward because he comes at night under a cloak of darkness. Uh, but I think there's actually an element of courage in him. That at least he comes forward. At least he has the conversation. He's willing to investigate who Jesus is to get to the truth of the matter. And I think there's some, some points of application that we can draw from this. I think maybe some of you identify with Nicodemus. Maybe you work at an institution or in a field where identifying yourself as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, and as one who believes in the inspired word of God, that comes with a cost. It may be damaging to your reputation, uh, and to identify yourself that way is costly. So maybe you identify with Nicodemus a little bit in this. Uh, or maybe identifying yourself as a Christian among your friends is just going to bring criticism from them, whether it's your friends or your coworkers. And being being an upfront uh, uh, Christian in the face of all those that know you is difficult. And so maybe your strategy is uh, to kind of keep your head down, keep a low profile, keep your faith alive and well, but just sort of keep it below the surface of being observed. And so what I appreciate about Nicodemus here is even though he was supposed to be Israel's teacher, he shows that he is still a student. He's still willing to learn. He's still willing to come to Jesus and have the conversation to figure out who he is. And as we're going to see, this initial conversation which takes place in the shadows will plant a seed that will germinate into a faith that will come out into the light of day. And it starts with his courage and his willingness to at least ask the questions and have the conversation. Some boldness and some courage to come to Jesus. What we understand is, as we get through this text here, Nicodemus knows who Jesus is in a sense, or he knows that Jesus is from God. He makes that statement if we believe him, if we take him at his word. He knows that he is from God. The miracles that Jesus had performed, which he refers to as signs, authenticate Jesus in Nicodemus's eyes as one who is from God. He says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. 
And again, I think this, I think he's an incredibly encouraging figure for us because to the skeptic, to someone who is skeptical about Jesus and not sure if he is who he says he is and all of that, Nicodemus is encouraging as one who took a risk and went and explored who Jesus really was. Uh, To the individual who's highly educated and and in a position of prominence and maybe has much to lose, We again are encouraged because evidently Nicodemus, who had all of this education and all of this to lose, saw enough in Jesus that he went to talk with him. And so if you find yourself to be a skeptic, Nicodemus is one who is on the ground and in a sense works for you because he takes that perspective into his investigation here with Jesus. And also, I think for the long term Christian, maybe you've walked with God for 20, 30, 40 years. And maybe what you're battling with is the fact that you know you are on a spiritual plateau. You've stopped learning. You've stopped growing. You've stopped sacrificing. You've stopped risking. You've stopped being confronted by the living God. And what you have in your life is a caricature of a God who met you once upon a time, but you've not developed that relationship at all. And if that's you, Nicodemus is an encouragement that we all need to continue to grow in understanding of who Jesus is, to have a living, dynamic relationship with him, and not just resting on the laurels of a past meeting. And so I think Nicodemus is encouraging in, in a lot of ways, just simply by coming forward to have what actually turns out to be a bit of an awkward conversation with Jesus. So it's awkward, first of all, because of who he is, but the conversation is also awkward uh, because of how Jesus communicates. Now, I'm, I'm going to be careful in how I talk about this. I don't want to get struck by lightning, especially in front of all of you here. I'm not trying to be disrespectful of Jesus in any way, but I'm just being honest as I read the text. I'll say this up front. Jesus isn't very clear. Okay? Uh, so follow along with me. Verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Do you remember the context of this? Nicodemus walks up to him and says, Rabbi, we know that you're sent from God because nobody could do what you, you know, do what you're doing or perform the signs that you're doing unless God had sent him. And the next thing Jesus says is, yeah, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Does that sound like a conversation one to another? I mean, it sounds like parallel conversations. It doesn't sound like they're talking to each other. It's just like a complete miss, right? And it goes on from there. I would say it gets worse before it gets better. Uh, Look at verse 4. How can someone be born again when they're old? That's a legitimate question, I think, that Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. And at that point I would think, what? What are you talking about there? And he goes on. Flesh gives birth, to, gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. I understand that question. I get that. Uh, You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who 
came from heaven, the Son of Man. All right, now hopefully you see where, where I'm going when I make this statement. And my, my background education, my undergraduate, is, uh, is in communications. I have a communications major and a Bible minor. And I just completed, actually, uh, my master's degree. I got my diploma in the mail yesterday. Woo-hoo. All right. It took me 13 years. <laughs> 13 years for 60 units, but it's done. Hallelujah. And uh, so I am celebrating uh, along with a lot of you other graduates, at least in my mind, uh, that's done. But my undergraduate is, is in communications. And so I'm used to studying a, you know, a speech or a passage and looking at it and trying to figure out, well, what are the themes? How is this laid out? How is it structured? And that's uh, been really helpful for me in, as, in pastoral ministry. And, and as a communications major, with that training in my background, I look at this passage and I, then I add all of my, my, my other hermeneutical training to this and I go, Jesus, you're not being very clear. You're just not. Uh, and sometimes I can get frustrated because it seems to me that he is so cryptic. And I think Jesus, as, as the creator of language... Surely you can push past all of what we don't understand and be clear. Throughout this conversation, as I said earlier, it seems like Nicodemus and Jesus are just not communicating, at least not very well. See, and I think what's happening here is Nicodemus wants to come to Jesus and make him the topic of conversation, the topic of scrutiny, if you will. But it seems to me that what Jesus wants to do is to make Nicodemus in the pharisaical tradition of how one is made right with God the topic of scrutiny. It seems to me that they come to the conversation each with their own agenda. And so at the beginning of this, they're kind of circling each other, you know, like almost like boxers in a ring here. And so what happens, first of all, is Jesus kind of challenges how one enters the kingdom of God. He passes right over Nicodemus's observations of his miracles, and he kind of goes right to the jugular with his statement, no one will see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. See, Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, and I think he is sort of offering a gentle introduction to the conversation of, are you the Messiah? In other words, we know that you're sent from God. We can tell that by these signs. And I think he's kind of fishing for the second half of that. So who are, are you? Are you the one that we were looking for? Now I'm, I'm suggesting that question is in, is in Nicodemus's mind, even though he doesn't ask it here. And so I think Jesus blows kind of right past that and wants him to understand the kingdom of God is not going to be established simply by my showing up here and, and putting down Roman oppression and establishing my rule and reign. The kingdom of God is much bigger and broader than that. And it's not entered into with political force or anything like that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be entered into with a whole new birth, a whole new regeneration, a whole new kind of life. It's not just a political earthly reality. It is a spiritual reality. And so I think Jesus wants to show him that really their system is flawed. Their thinking is flawed. One is not going to be able to enter into the kingdom of God by performing their way into God's good graces. But in fact, what it's going to take is a qualitative new birth of their whole life. New birth. And so, then Jesus proceeds to basically introduce some challenging metaphors to get at what this new birth and this new kind of spiritual life looks like. 
And um, and again, it, with Jesus teaching Nicodemus here, it almost reminds me of my years in youth ministry when you'd be teaching junior hires. Junior hires, love you guys. You're lots of fun. But you're very literal, you know. And, and you teach a junior hire something and they kind of look at you and they take it absolutely literal and it's difficult to sort of get beyond that that level of meaning sometimes. And Nicodemus seems stuck right there in the literal. And Jesus is trying to get past that into the spiritual and what happens uh, in a person's spirit here. And so he speaks of this new birth and describes it as a person must be born of water and of the spirit. Now I submit to you, that's not very clear either, is it? What does it mean to be born of water and the spirit? And there are several different themes or, or suggestions about, about what this might mean. But I think the best explanation, quite simply, is this. That this conversation that's happening between Nicodemus and Jesus happens right on the heels of Jesus' baptism. Remember that? John the Baptist was out baptizing people. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance. People were to come out. They were to repent. They were to prepare their hearts for the arrival of Messiah. That's what they were doing. And so I think what Jesus is communicating here is that um, that there has to be an act of repentance. So it's not baptism that saves you, but that repentance that came along with water baptism in that particular moment. Along, uh, and along with that, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes afterwards. And that these are the things that shows that one is born again. So being born again comes through repentance... And then it is shown or demonstrated as the Holy Spirit indwells a person. So we are born of water and the Spirit. And I think that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. That gets a little confusing for us to hear that. But I believe that's what Nicodemus would have heard. And then, again, it doesn't get clearer. It gets fuzzier after this. Because the next thing that Jesus brings up is the wind. And where does this come from? He tells Nicodemus, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. That's debatable, but, you know, uh, that's what he says. But then he just all of a sudden brings up the wind out of nowhere. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound and you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Why does he bring up wind here? And actually, there's a word play that's going on that's not visible to us as we read this in English. But actually, wind and spirit in the Greek language are the same word. It's pneuma. It's pneuma. It's the exact same word. And so Jesus is basically making a play on words. And he's, he's talking about, as he's talking about the spirit, he's sort of making a reference to what the spirit and the wind have in common. As they share this word, what they have in common is that they're both invisible and they're both unpredictable. And so he kind of uses, uses this as an illustration. And that's a customary teaching pattern of Jesus to use an earthly example to illustrate a spiritual truth. And that's what he does again and again and again in sort of these metaphors here. But then he says something that um, I think is a little bit tough. He, he sort of confronts Nicodemus on Nicodemus' ignorance of these things. And I, I sympathize with Nicodemus. I, maybe you're hearing that loud and clear. Nicodemus asks the question, how can this be? Which reminds me of Tevya and uh, Fiddler on the Roof, if you've seen that movie. How can this be? Right? That's a legitimate question. And then Jesus responds, You're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? And so you get the sense that both of them leave the conversation scratching their heads. Right? 
Nicodemus is saying, what are you talking about? And Jesus is saying, how is it that you don't understand what I'm talking about? This is how most of the conversations between Amy and I end, you know. It's like a husband and wife here going, we're on different pages. I don't understand, you know. And um, this, this conversation, which is awkward at first, however, then creates a stage from which Jesus will teach us what he really wants us to know. And so what begins this awkwardness and some unclarity begins to take on clarity. But there is a third level of awkwardness that we have to recognize first. The conversation is awkward next because of what Jesus will demand. Verse 14. Just as Moses, now here again, what does Moses have to do with any of this? I mean, Jesus is all over the map in this conversation. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Ah, sweet clarity, right? There it is. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And here, once again, we see the, the greatness of Jesus' teaching actually on display here. And, and one of the things that he uses in this, this point, he's used lots of illustrations up to this point, but now he uses a historical incident, one that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with as a keeper of the law and a guardian of the traditions. He would absolutely have known and known well the stories of Moses. And so the story that he is referencing here uh, actually takes place uh, back in Numbers. Actually, I'm going to get to that in just a second here. Most most uh, sort of learning theorists will tell us that we can't learn something or conceive of something in absolute abstraction. I mean, I can't just I can't t- teach you of something absolutely new that has no connection to what you already know. The way that we learn is by making bridges between what we know and what we don't know. Right? We associate or we build upon knowledge with new with new information, and. And that's the way that Jesus teaches here. He's continuing to use things that are known to, and, and then building upon those with what is unknown. So when he uses the illustration of being born again, he is, he's using that illustration to, to teach about the qualitative change that's necessary in a person's life before they can enter the kingdom of God. When, when he's speaking about the wind, he's helping to teach about the Holy Spirit, whom many of these folks may not know or understand. And so he's taking what they do know, the wind, something that we can't see and, and for them that they couldn't predict, and, and teaching that so is, you know, there's similarities here with the Holy Spirit. And now he goes to this historical event of Moses lifting up the snake to help us understand a new idea, which is salvation through faith. And that's the point that he makes here. And so this part of the conversation is a bit awkward because of what Jesus demands. And the first part is this, that salvation will be found through faith alone. 
It won't just be a political reality of Messiah showing up and changing the culture. But there is a spiritual relationship that must be entered into, and it's entered into through faith. And again, this references this, uh, an incident that happens back in Numbers 21, starting or in verses 8 and 9. And I'll leave that to you to go and, and look at if you like. But basically, the short version is, of the story is that while Israel was in the desert, uh, many were being bitten by snakes, and they were getting ill, and they were needing treatment. And so God instructed Moses to basically make this bronze snake of sorts that would be lifted up on a pole or a standard and that as israel came to look upon and gaze upon that particular snake that they would receive uh, healing for their ailment and understand this it wasn't that this particular instrument was magic or had inherent power it was the act of faith and obeying god and doing what he said that produced a salvation from the ailment that they had And so Jesus is borrowing from that historical event and reminding Nicodemus of a previous salvation that was based upon faith. To teach him about a spiritual salvation, eternal salvation that is granted by faith alone. And that what we would need to do is to look upon Jesus, who too would need to be lifted up. And that as we turn our eyes upon him and trust in him and what he has done on our behalf, that there would be salvation. But again, that's an event that hasn't happened yet. And so Jesus is just planting seeds uh, of truths that will be later realized. Um, another thing that Jesus said here that is kind of awkward. So not only he, does he introduce salvation through faith, which was sort of new in a sense uh, to Nicodemus. But he also teaches something that's really hard and very, very unpopular, I would say. That condemnation really is the default position of mankind. That's where we start. And this is very contrary to what our world says. Our world says that we're born in innocence. That we're by nature good. That we're inherently good. That as long as we do more good than bad, then that's all that God wants. And that's pretty much what our world has to say about things. And the Bible says something completely contradictory to that. It says that we enter this world with the default position of guilty before God. We are sinners by nature. We have inherited the... The sinfulness of Adam, we have inherited his sin, we have a sin nature, and we have added to that through our whole lives. So contrary to what our culture's belief is that mankind is inherently good, the reality of Scripture is that we're naturally born sinners. That's our default standing. We're born with inherited sin and inclination to sin and a whole life of sinful actions. And so we are all beginning at the point of condemned. And we need to be rescued out of that. And so Jesus is showing that I haven't come to condemn the world. I haven't come to do that. You're already in that position. I've come to pull you out of it. I've come to rescue you from that. Then he gets to this last point, And again, he uses an illustration. That uh, may be lost on some. But he basically teaches that we need to come into the light. And I believe this is specifically meant for Nicodemus. And. I may be wrong about this, but I think this might have been really the piercing point here for him. Um, Jesus wants our faith to come out into the light of day. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, covertly, secretly. And I think what Jesus is saying here is you have to come forward. You have to come out into the light of day. Your faith has to be bold. You can't do it under wraps. 
human nature, our inclination, our tendency is to hide. To hide our sin. To hide our need. Uh, That was the act of Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember? When God came calling and they knew of their sin, what did they do? They hid. They hid from him. Nicodemus hid as he approached Jesus under a cloak of darkness. Um, He hid. And our temptation is to hide our sin and to hide uh, our need as well. Uh, And I think I want to try to distill this whole section into one little paragraph here so you can see what Jesus is doing and all of these illustrations and all of what seems awkward. I, I believe this is what he's saying. That salvation is found by no longer hiding, but by coming into the light and acknowledging that we are sinners and repenting of our sin. And in faith, looking to the crucified Christ, lifted up as our sacrifice. The result is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who seals us in the family of God and empowers us to live a life of growing obedience. And I believe that's what Jesus is communicating. And all of these illustrations and all of this awkwardness, he's planting the seeds of these truths, which become clearer and clearer as his ministry goes on. And I would tell you this, what is encouraging is it makes an impact in the life of Nicodemus. You can't see it here, but if you continue to chase his life through the rest of the book, and I'd encourage you to do so this week. In chapter 7, you see a point where he actually becomes defensive of Jesus and his ministry. And then at the very end of the book, at the very end of the book, I think it's in chapter 19, at a time in Jesus' life when it's the least acceptable and popular to be identified with him. Jesus has been killed. He's on the cross. It's the night of Passover. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come out into the light of day. They've, they've sort of hidden their belief, their faith, their, their curiosity up to this point. But at this moment, when it's unpopular to be identified with Christ, they come forward and they ask for his body and they remove his body from the cross and they take his body to give Jesus a proper and honorable burial. And so in the end, these seeds of faith would start with investigation and questions and awkward conversation eventually germinate and grow and become full-born, bold faith in the light of day. It's a pretty cool story, the life of Nicodemus. And so there's awkwardness in this conversation and there is unclarity. But there's also great clarity. Salvation is found by no longer hiding, but by coming into the light, by acknowledging that we're sinners, by repenting of our sin, and in faith looking upon the crucified Christ, lifted up as our sacrifice. And the result, the indwelling spirit of God who regenerates us from the inside out, sealing us for the family of God and empowering us for a life of obedience. And that's what John 3 has to say to us. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to remember the Lord's Supper together this morning. Father, I appreciate so much the way the scriptures are put together. Um, It includes these wonderful people who are imperfect and flawed and filled with questions, just like we are. And they have the kinds of conversations with you, just like we might have. The word of God is honest enough to show that there's confusion at times, and awkwardness, and unbelief, and uncertainty. 
And yet it also shows the process of belief growing, germinating and growing and developing and becoming full-fledged, bold faith. And so as we look at the text, Lord, we, we see the same kind of people that we are. Lord, there are people here this morning who are followers of Christ, but secretly. They keep their head down and their faith is private, personal. And they do not bring it into the light of day. I ask that you would give them courage. God, there are people here this morning that are skeptical. They have questions about Jesus. They don't understand him. I ask that they would take an example from Nicodemus and find courage to ask, to explore, and to investigate. And Father, there are people here this morning who have been Christians a long time. And their discipleship has grown cold. Their relationship is flat. They haven't learned anything new or changed anything or grown in any way. And God, may they take a lesson from Nicodemus and have courage. And be willing to confront and encounter what they don't know. So God, may we learn uh, this morning from this story, even though there are points here that are unclear, there is also great clarity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.